We're going to be looking at uh, John 5, which is part of our Lenten series of sermons, all connected with the miracles of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of John. And John calls them signs. Now, when you think about a sign, sign points to something. Sign makes us think about something else, something bigger, something greater. And so in the Gospel of John, Jesus performs these miracles that are not supposed to be just left on their own, but they're supposed to be interpreted as leading to something else. And so the same pattern occurs in every one of these passages. There's a sign, a miracle, something unusual happens, which elicits faith. And as that faith is exercised, more life flows into our existence. So we're looking at a healing in Jerusalem from John chapter 5. I'm going to read this passage for us, John 5, verses 1 through 18. You're welcome to follow in your own Bibles or in the Pew Bible. John is the fourth book in the New Testament, the fourth gospel, or you can simply listen to me as I read. John 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man, said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. I'd like us to look at this passage under three headings. First, let's consider the question that Jesus asks. Secondly, let's look at the healing itself. And finally, Let's look at the Sabbath or the rest. We find Jesus once again going to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the Jewish religious holidays. We're not told which one, but as a pious Jewish man, he goes to Jerusalem. 
And he comes to a pool by the sheep gate called Bethesda, which literally means house of mercy. Apparently, there was a belief that the pool had healing powers. In fact, verse 4, which is omitted in most of your Bibles, I would imagine, unless you're using the King James, you will find it there. But most scholars believe it was a later edition. It was something that a scribe put in the margin and then just made it into the text eventually, and then we got a little smarter, we took it out. This is the, the story. So you're missing verse 4. But the idea is that somebody had to explain why people were expecting things to happen at that pool, some sort of a stirring, because we read about a stirring later. And so somebody said, well, it must be an angel that comes in and stirs up the water and healing power is released, and whoever jumps in the pool first is healed for whatever, whatever disease that they had. Now, we don't know. Maybe true. Maybe a superstition. But that was why apparently people came to that pool. And there's a multitude of people. There's a crowd of people all lying around waiting for this stirring of the waters to happen so they can be healed. And Jesus comes to this place. He goes through the crowd of needy people, and he approaches one person. This man's disability is not explained. We're not sure exactly what happened to him or what his condition was. But we know that he's not able to move very well or very quickly and that he had this condition for 38 years, which coincidentally is about the lifespan that you expected at that time. So all his life, he's in this debilitating condition. Jesus finds this man, and then he does a rather strange thing. Look at verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Jesus asked the man who had been ill for 38 years, who was at the pool of Bethesda, waiting for an angel to stir the healing water, he asked him, do you want to be healed? Does that strike you as strange? It's the first thing that stood out in this text to me. Why is Jesus, why is he talking to him to begin with? Why him? And why is he asking this question? Why is he asking this man whether he wants to be healed? Let me try to unravel this. Now first, Jesus' question, the fact that he's asking him anything, that he's talking to him, reveals his desire to engage this person. Jesus is engaging him. It says, when Jesus saw him lying there, when Jesus saw him lying there, meaning Jesus noticed him. Among a multitude of people, Jesus noticed this person, this man. He saw him, and he wanted to help him. The man's answer to Jesus' question should actually make us wonder why Jesus engaged him, why this person. Because he asks him, do you want to be healed? And the man basically makes an excuse why he can never be healed. Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? And he says, well, whenever there's water that's stirred up by an angel, and I try to get there, someone else is always there before me. And nobody is here to help me get there first. 
Even after he is miraculously healed, Jesus heals him. Jesus says, get up and walk. Even after that happens, the man doesn't even ask Jesus' name. And when he does learn his name later, he seems to be all too happy to blame Jesus for his conflict with the Sabbath police at the temple. What we have here is a self-absorbed person used to blame others, who's been so defined by his condition, so defined by his disability and his sickness, that he can't see outside of himself. He can't see outside of his need. And yet this is the person that Jesus finds and heals. Why? What is so attractive about this person to Jesus? I think the only logical answer is that it was the man's great need that attracted Jesus to him. It wasn't how he dealt with it. It wasn't his hope. It wasn't his desire to be healed. It was his need. It was actually his condition. Nothing else made this person a great candidate for a healing besides his great need. He spent his whole life suffering, and Jesus saw him. Jesus saw him. Isn't it fitting that at the pool of Bethesda, at the house of mercy, it was Jesus' mercy that moved him to find and heal a man who had been ill for 38 years? The fact that Jesus is asking him a question, or that he's talking to him at all, means that it is our misery, our need, our pain that draws Jesus' attention. Now listen to Dane Ortland. He says, If the actions of Jesus are reflective of who he is most deeply, we cannot avoid the conclusion that it is the very fallenness which he came to undo that is most irresistibly attractive to him. This is deeper than saying Jesus is loving or merciful and gracious. The cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. Jesus is drawn to this man in great need. And so he engages him. He talks to him. Now, that may explain why he talks to him, why he asks him a question, but why ask him this question? Why ask him, do you want to be healed? Look at verse 6 again. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew, knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Not only did Jesus see him in his great need, but he also knew him. Jesus knew that he was suffering. Jesus knew that he was desperate. Jesus knew that he was hurting. So let's put Jesus' question into the context of Jesus' knowledge of Jesus' relationship to this person. Jesus is not only coming to him as a physical healer, but is also coming to him as a friend. Friends talk to each other. So Jesus engages him, and Jesus talks to him, to this man, about the most important thing in his life, what controls his life, what consumes his life. This is what Jesus wants to talk to him about. Jesus is someone who is not only concerned with the man's physical condition, 
He's also concerned with the man himself. And so he's going to talk to him. He's going to unravel this. He's going to help him figure out what's going on. When Jesus asks the man if he wants to be healed, he wants to help him know himself as well as Jesus knows him. You see, the man's physical disability was only one of his problems. Yes, it consumed him. Yes, it was front and center in his mind. This is what he was thinking about. This is all he can think about. But Jesus is going to unravel it and discover other issues. Jesus asks a question that is meant to prompt an honest assessment of the man's true condition. We'll see in a few minutes that Jesus' goal is to bring a much greater healing to him. Jesus is offering divine life to him. And the simple question that seems to to call for an obvious answer is meant to help this man dig deeper and discover greater need for a greater healing. Now, this approach is not unusual in Jesus' ministry. Read through the Gospels, and you will find that Jesus frequently asks questions. He wants us to think. He wants us to know ourselves. He wants us to figure stuff out. Now listen to Ruth Haley Barton. She says, I have found it surprising, but also reassuring, to enter into the biblical story and discover that Jesus himself routinely asked people questions that helped them to get in touch with their desire and name it in his presence. He often brought focus and clarity to his interactions with those who were spiritually hungry by asking them, what do you want? What do you want me to do for you? Such questions had the power to elicit deeply honest reflection in the person to whom they were addressed and open the way for Christ to lead them into deeper levels of spiritual truth and healing. So let me ask you the same question. Do you want to be healed? Is it an obvious question with an obvious answer? Is that just a rhetorical question? We all say, of course, But if you ask that question, if you honestly ask yourself that question, you will find there are layers to be unpeeled. What kind of healing do you want to see in your life? What do you want Jesus to do for you? This is not an easy question to answer, is it? If we're honest. If we allow Jesus' knowledge of us to now meet our need, And now we're able to think as he thinks and trying to look at ourselves as he looks at ourselves, knowing us, knowing the depths of our need, knowing the depths of our desires. Now we're starting to get somewhere. All begins with a question. Do you want to be healed? If you answer it honestly, you will discover levels of need and fear and insecurity and unbelief, all of which need Jesus And not only as a healer, but also as a friend. You need Jesus not only to see you in your need, but you need him to know you. To know you better than you know yourself. And to help you know yourself better so you can be healed. Now let me suggest an exercise for you. It's Lent. I'm I'm pushing all of us to, to do more, to pursue Christ with more effort so I'd like to suggest that you, would, you set aside 30 minutes sometime this week, half an hour. Sit down with the journal, 
Go for a walk. Go for a drive. Be alone with Jesus and answer the question, do you want to be healed? Listen to him. Listen to him work with your heart, pulling out these desires, working with your insecurities, building up your faith. I promise that as you do that, and if you do that with an open heart, it will be incredibly uncomfortable for you. You will discover things in your heart that you don't want to know about. But Jesus knows. I can also promise you that it will be incredibly insightful, and you will know yourself better than you did before. And if you come to him with an open heart, you will find a healing that you didn't even know you needed, or maybe something you were afraid to ask for. Would you do that this week? Half an hour, set time aside, and simply answer the question, Jesus asking you, do you want to be healed? Okay, let's talk about the healing. Not accepting any of the man's excuses. I mean, this is this is rapid dialogue here. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? He says, how can I ever be healed? Whenever I get to the water, somebody's there before me. Nobody wants to help me. Jesus says, get up, get your bed, and go. Gets up, picks up his mat, and walks away. There's an immediate healing that happens. It's a miraculous thing. Jesus tells him to get up, and he gets up. Couldn't move before, and now he can. He rolls up his mat and walks away. Jesus has that kind of power. He had it then, he has it now. Jesus can do that. Jesus does do that. But this is not all that Jesus wants to do with this man. As I'm reading through these passages, these these miraculous signs, time and time again I realize that what we see on the surface is only the first step that Jesus makes towards us. And there's so much more than he's trying to do with us. He's working on so many different levels, from so many different angles, that only as we walk with him, only as we submit ourselves to his counseling, to his healing, to his treatment, that we realize how deep that healing is going to go and how much more he's going to do with us. We don't know what to ask for, and yet when we come to him, he starts working with us. And this is exactly what he does here. It begins with a miraculous physical healing, no question. A beautiful thing, a man who couldn't walk now walks away. But then look at verse 14. He continues to work with him. Verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus says, Look, I've healed. You're physically well. I've healed you. You're fine now. You've experienced a miraculous healing. But something worse than a 38 year year illness threatens your life. The problem of this disability has been solved. I've healed you. I've released you. I've delivered you. But a much greater problem remains. What is the bigger problem? Sin. Sin. He heals them. His body's fine, at least for a time. His body's fine. And he says, now deal with sin. Now notice what Jesus does. He takes the one consuming thing from his life away. It's an amazing thing. It's a, it's a gift of grace. He comes into his life and he says, I know that all you can think about is your disability, so I'm going to take it away. Why? 
partly because Jesus is compassionate and gracious, but partly because now it's no longer a barrier for him to deal with the most important thing, his sin. He says, now you're free, physically you're free, you've been delivered, deal with the main issue. Deal with your sin, because if you don't, something worse is going to happen to you. If sin is not addressed, something worse is going to happen. Jesus says in Matthew 18, it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Jesus says, it's great that you're now healthy, but if you don't deal with the problem of sin, you will end up in hell. Now there's an implication here that somehow it's this person's sin that caused this this sickness. Now we know that there are many causes of sickness. Sometimes it's your sin, sure, like in this case. Sometimes it's someone else's sin. You had nothing to do with your sickness. It just happened to you. Someone else caused it. Sometimes it's just the general brokenness of the world that causes sickness and disability and depression. Nothing you did. Nothing anyone else did. It just is because the world is broken. And yet, all of it is somehow caused by sin. So look at what Jesus does. He goes from the symptom to the condition, to the underlying condition. He deals with the symptom. Yes, he does. He releases him from this physical disability. But he really wants to eradicate the cause, sin. Because sin, this separation from God and thus from life, is our greatest problem. If our sinful condition is not healed, if we are not reconciled to God, to life, if life is not restored to us supernaturally, we will be judged by God and spend eternity experiencing death. Now, theologians say that sin is the only Christian doctrine that needs no defense. You don't have to tell people that sin exists. You don't have to tell people evil exists because you just look around and you say, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Something is wrong with this world. Something is wrong with me, and I can't fix it. I'm trying. We're trying. But we don't seem to get anywhere with our effort. Sickness, like poverty or racism or war, are just manifestations of a deeper dysfunction. And Jesus wants us to turn our attention to the fundamental problem, even while he's not ignoring the specific symptoms. A good doctor does that. You go to a good doctor, and they're saying, okay, you have a fever. I'm going to give you something for your fever. We're going to get it under control so you don't feel as bad as you're feeling right now, but we're going to figure out why it's there. We're going to dig deep. We're going to figure out what the cause of it, and we're going to address that. No matter how difficult it is, this is what we're going to deal with. Now, let me give you another analogy. You're on a train headed up the mountain towards the mouth of a volcano. I couldn't come up with anything more dramatic, okay? So (laughs) you're in a train, it's going up a hill, and somewhere in the distance, there's a mouth of a volcano. And that's where the train is going. You're on that train, nobody seems to be concerned, 
with the direction of the train. On the other hand, everyone seems to be concerned with how comfortable they are. There's a busy workout car. Everybody's trying to stay healthy. The restaurant is very popular, very good. People are playing board games, having a good time. You get the picture. Everybody's trying to make that ride as comfortable as they can. And yet, and yet, the destination is still ruinous. You can even run in the opposite direction in the train, along the hallway of the train, but you can't get away from where the train is going. Jesus does care about your health. Jesus does care about your comfort. Jesus does care about your financial stability. He does care about your marriage and your children and your education. But he wants you to get off the train. The reason Jesus came is so he can get you off the train because of where the train is going. That's why he came. That's why he's talking to this man about sin. He heals him, but then he brings up sin. He finds him again. He continues to pursue him because that physical healing isn't enough. Is it good? Yes. Is Jesus happy to do it? Yes. But it's not enough. Something else has to be done. So let's apply it to yourself. Let's be honest. Let's apply these things to ourselves. Let's ask ourselves, are you content to have Jesus address the symptoms of your life, but not the fundamental problem of your life? Honestly, many of us are. I am on a particular day. I don't want Jesus to deal with the deep stuff. But I do want him to help me. There are things I don't like about my life, and if he can just come in and fix that, if he can turn up the AC just a little bit on the train, maybe I'm okay with that. Are you okay to stay, stay on the train if Jesus just makes it more comfortable for you? Are you more concerned with health than with hell? Are you more worried about your sickness than your sin? Do you want to be healed? That's the question. That is the question. This is what this question means. What kind of healing do you want in your life? Now, this man, this healed man's sinful condition is left unresolved. We don't know. He walks away healed. Jesus finds him. He now knows Jesus' name. Jesus tells him to sin no more, deal with your sin. And he just leaves. And then he talks to the Jews and he says, Jesus healed me. Maybe he's blaming his problems on Jesus again. Maybe just continuing in the same trajectory he was in, now just healthy. Maybe he's given credit to Jesus for healing him. We're not sure. We don't know if later he believes in Jesus. Now, if he does believe later, then this physical healing becomes a glimpse of a greater healing to come. It's just part of Jesus' work in his life. But if he doesn't believe in Jesus, this physical healing just made him a little more comfortable on the train to hell. And so we're left with the question, and I think on purpose, I think this, this man's life is left ambiguous to us. His response to Jesus' call to sin no more is left ambiguous, so we deal with our own stuff. 
And so now we go into this next set of verses that talk about the Sabbath. <laughs> Why? Why? What? What are we doing? <laughs> Why is this issue of the Sabbath become such an important issue in the Gospels? Because the question we have, all the way through verse 16, certainly through, through verse 15, is what do I do with my sin? <laughs> How do I solve this problem with sin? And then we have verses about the Sabbath. What is going on here? Well, let me try to illuminate that. Verse 15 and verse 16. Verse 15, this man's healing the call to, fit, the call to deal with his sin. Verse 16 says this, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. They were persecuting him because he was healing on the Sabbath. Now, if you read the Gospels, you know it's not accidental that Jesus heals on the Sabbath. Lots of healings on the Sabbath. The religious leaders were really upset with Jesus, upset enough to persecute him, upset enough to put him on trial that he was doing work on the Sabbath. The problem was, in their mindset, was that you couldn't work. God forbids us to work on the Sabbath, on the day of rest. And Jesus is doing these things. Healings, making people carry things. What is he doing? It's ironic that when the man was healed, the re religious leaders scolded him for carrying his bed while totally ignoring that he was made well. Isn't it amazing? That their focus is you're breaking the Sabbath when he has just experienced a miraculous healing by God's grace. Now, this idea that you can't carry things on the Sabbath was actually an extra thing. God says don't work on the Sabbath. So if your work is construction and you're lifting heavy things, yeah, don't do that. But if you've been healed and you're taking your bed home, you rolled up your mat and now you're taking it home, that's not work, is it? But they've developed these rules. There's 39 extra Sabbath rules, and one of them was you can't pick up anything on the Sabbath. And so when they see this man who's just been healed, carrying his mat, they're saying, Sabbath, Sabbath, you're breaking the Sabbath. Can't carry anything on the Sabbath. Don't pick up your bed. And so what actually happened at that time with Sabbath observance is that you had to work really hard to keep the Sabbath. It took a lot of effort to be able to rest on the Sabbath day. <laughs> it wasn't easy to rest on the Sabbath in Jerusalem in Jesus' time. Why? Because they wanted to do things right. They wanted to put the right effort towards the right things so God would be happy with them. And by doing that, they missed the whole point of the Sabbath commandment, as we miss the whole point of God's grace. Amen. What is the point of the Sabbath? God gives us one day a week to stop our normal work so we can trust Him to provide for us. That's the point. You say, I'm not going to work. I'm not going to make money. I'm not going to do things that depend on me for my life to go on and I'm going to trust God to give me life. Amen. So remember in the wilderness when the Israelites are, are wandering around and they're hungry and God gives them manna and he says, every day, go get manna 
Just get enough for that day. You're not going to run out. But on the Sabbath, don't go gather manna. Because whatever you've gathered on the day before, you will have enough. And even if you didn't have enough, I'll make sure that you have enough. And if you think it's going to spoil, it's not going to spoil. Any other day, the next day is going to spoil, but not on the Sabbath. What's the lesson here? God is saying, trust me to provide for you. Trust me. So you stop working and you simply rely on God's provision. Which is why we should keep the Sabbath today too. It's an incredibly meaningful spiritual experience of saying, I can get more work done today. I have that extra day. But I won't because I will trust God to provide for me. And so what happens here at this miracle, in this miracle at the the healing at the pool of Bethesda? God's provision of health comes apart from human work. That's exactly what happens. Think about it. The man says, I can never get healed because I'm not strong enough or quick enough or able enough to get into the pool when the, the angel comes and stirs the water. And Jesus says, I will heal you. Just trust me, get up and walk. You don't have to get in the pool. You don't have to make any effort. I will provide health for you. For 38 years, the man has been working to get well. And now Jesus comes and says, accept the gift. And so the healing at the pool was the most natural thing to experience on the Sabbath. And everybody missed it. Jesus comes and gives a gift. He comes and he provides. He says, you don't need to work. You don't need to put in your effort. I am here to restore life to you by grace. Now, why did the Jews oppose that? Why, why did the religious leaders have such a problem with that? Because they were trying to make the train to the volcano as comfortable as they could while Jesus was reversing the direction of the train. When they accused him of breaking the Sabbath, Jesus says in verse 17, My father is working until now, and I am working. My daddy works Sundays, and I'm working this day. He's referring to the common understanding of the rabbis of the day that God was working on the Sabbath even though he was not breaking the Sabbath. There's a big controversy. Because if God is resting, who's sustaining life in this creation? That's the question. But if God is sustaining life in this creation, how is he keeping the Sabbath? So the rabbis got together and they decided that God is both working and resting at the same time. God is sustaining life and yet he's not breaking the Sabbath that God's work actually sustains the Sabbath for his creation. So when Jesus says, my father is working until now and I am working, what he's saying is, I am here to work so that my people can rest. Just as God is sustaining life in this creation, I am coming to work so that this creation can rest. I'm here to do something, some work, so that the whole creation can enter the Sabbath rest. Jesus is saying, I'm here to deal with sin that has disrupted the Sabbath of this world. I am here to bring the true Sabbath rest back into this world. I'm here to stop the train 
I'm not here just to make you more comfortable. I'm here to get you off the train. And so I'm here to work so you can rest. That's the connection between verse 15 and 16. We're left with the question, what do I do with my sin? And then we get into the conversation about the Sabbath. Because it's through his work that our rest comes. When he said what he said in verse 17 about his father working and him working, everyone knew that only God can say that. Nobody else can say that. Because nobody else can work and keep the Sabbath at the same time. Only God can do that. Only God can work to bring life to his creation and at the same time never break Sabbath. And somehow through this, allow life to flow into his creation and provide for the rest of his world. Oh, the irony of ironies. The tragedy of tragedies. And yet, the triumph of triumphs. The only person who kept the Sabbath perfectly was persecuted and killed as a Sabbath breaker. And yet through his death, through his work, he accomplished the greatest work on our behalf so we can rest in him forever. It is not accidental that John points out that the pool called Bethesda was by the sheep gate. Through the gate that's close to the temple, it's through this gate that the sacrificial animals were brought in. And so Jesus comes in through the gate, comes to the pool, and gives mercy to the man. Why the symbolism? Because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for all the sinners, all the lawbreakers, all the self-righteous religious people, all the people consumed with the disability and sickness, all the sinners and sufferers. He comes and through the work of Jesus on the cross, in our place, he offers rest to us. The cross becomes the signal that redirects the train away from the volcano and toward a new city full of life, a city at rest. Hebrews 4 tells us, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Have you rested from your works? Have you rested from your efforts to manage your sin? Have you found rest in Jesus' work on the cross and in the empty tomb? Because that is the true Sabbath. God has provided the greatest healing for you, and it comes as a gift. It comes through faith, which is another word for rest, trust in him. Do you want to be healed?